Uh, good morning, my beloved family and friends in Christ. It's been a while, um, but I'm glad to be here. Pastor Arnold and Pastor Bobby, they're both away in the States, so please remember them in your prayers. And in your absence, I suppose you just have to make do with me. But seriously, I'm really happy to be with you all this morning. We are continuing with a second sermon in our series on prayer. But before we do that, let us pray. Father God, make your book live to us. As we take in your word, show us yourself clearly. Show us who we are really. And show us our deep need for our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. May you make your book live to us. Change our hearts and renew us so that we will increasingly grow to become more like Jesus Christ. For Jesus' name's sake and for your glory. Amen. Have you ever been overwhelmed by beauty? Does it hurt when you walk away? Perhaps it's a breathtaking sight of Singapore from atop the Marina Bay Sand Sky Park. Or it could be an eye-catching piece of art at the Singapore Art Science Museum. Or you hear a heart-stirring piece of music played by the Singapore Symphonic Orchestra. Have you been overwhelmed by beauty? These experiences leave us awestruck and thankful that we were able to witness them. We get a sense of, my I say it, gratitude that will rise into praise for the beauty we encountered. And this is what we see here today in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, the passage we'll be looking at. In your English Bibles, you don't actually see the feel of the paragraph, but in the original Greek in which Paul writes, verses 15 to 23 is one long extended sentence. You know, we can almost imagine with your sanctified imagination, imagine with me, we can imagine Paul being so awestruck by Jesus Christ that he piles on words upon words and thoughts upon thoughts trying to capture this sense of wonder and awe in response to the beauty in Christ Jesus. And as part of his response, Paul worships. Paul gives thanks to God and prays that the Ephesian church Grow in increasing knowledge of God, the sovereign for us, God. Paul writes to call Christians to respond in worship and thanksgiving and prayer because we have a sovereign, powerful, yet for us God, clearly seen in Christ Jesus. So if you have Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, and follow along with me as I read it. In the ESV, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. This is what Paul writes. This is the word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance 
behind the scenes. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. What an awesome and beautiful picture of Christ this verses paint. Keep this thought in mind as we continue with today's message. Paul's letter in the New Testament They are written to a specific group of Christians in a particular city in the first century Roman Empire. And Paul writes to address a particular issue or challenge which the church is facing. Therefore, if we are to understand today's passage well, we need to know a little bit about the historical context for the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was aptly called the mother city of Asia. This is because of her influence over politics and commerce and religion of the province. It was the headquarters for the Roman government and the political centre for the Greeks in Asia. And Ephesus was a religiously pluralistic society, city, just like much like Singapore. But it was also unique because the prominence of the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. And the temple to Diana was majestic and was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In Acts 19, we also see a thriving commerce in silver shrines and idols to Diana in the city. And you can imagine, as a citizen in Ephesus, as you wander the streets of Ephesus, you will see impressive civil buildings, you will see bustling trade houses, and you see huge temples, religious icons and shrines you will be daily reminded of the political, the economical, the religious power structures of the city. And on top of that, there's also a widespread belief among the citizens of the power of the magical arts and the folk magic. And when Christians in Ephesus came to know the Lord Jesus in Acts 19, they abandoned their magic practices and burned their books at great financial cost. Scripture records for us, it was about 50,000 pieces of silver, all gone up in flames. So just think with me. What, they have 50,000 silver pieces gone up in flames? They're facing all the power structures. They now have no magical charms or protections. They were economically impoverished. They faced the powerful cult of Diana. And they refused to bow to Caesar as Lord. All the power structures of the city seem to be in opposition to the church, who seem weak and powerless. And it is to this context that Paul writes while in prison to the Ephesians. Paul emphasized in this letter the power of God over all heavenly authorities and on Christ's triumphant ascension as head over the church and over all things in this age 
and next. He wanted to remind the Ephesian church of these things so they remain steadfast in their loyalty to Christ as the supreme power in the world and in their lives. And isn't this too very much like what we face right now in Singapore? We also daily face the political, the commercial, the religious and the secular power structures every day. And at times, we feel weak, we feel powerless. I mean, as a pastor, sometimes we feel that we are the weakest and most powerless. All we have is the Word of God. But the Word of God is power, as you'll see. Right? So how are we to respond to that? Paul's letter to the Ephesians also serve to speak in our context. And what did Paul say to the Ephesian church? We see after his greetings in verses 1 to 2, Paul in verses 3 to 14, heaps high praise for God's grace to his people, the church. Verses 3 to 14 is also one long sentence in the Greek. Paul strings together long descriptions of how God has lavished blessings, spiritual blessings and gifts to his people. And is following Paul's description of God's wondrous blessings of salvation given to us that Paul writes verses 15 to 16, praising God for growth seen in the church. The opening in verse 15 says, for this reason. And this points back to the whole section before in verses 3 to 14, to God's lavish grace to Christians in Jesus Christ. He also serves to point forward, points to God's powerful work in the lives of the efficient Christians and their faithful response to God. We read in verse 15 that Paul has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love towards all the saints. Paul has heard the report of their growing in spiritual maturity. They are growing in their faith and trust for the Lord Jesus Christ. They are growing in the love for one another in the church. Just as there will be an electrifying sense of being in the audience for the 50th National Day Parade today. I mean, how many of you got the tickets for the National Day Parade today? I heard it was pretty hard to ballot for. But can you imagine if you are sitting in the audience for the 50th Day National Day Parade? Can you imagine the electrifying feel as we celebrate the nation's birthday together? Just like that, in the efficient church, as they grow in their understanding and affections and trust in Jesus Christ, they also possess a growing, electrifying sense of love, kindness, compassion towards all fellow Christians in the church. You can almost feel it if you were in the midst. As a result, Paul does not cease to give thanks for them. I mean, this does not mean that Paul does not stop giving thanks every minute of the day, but rather that Paul regularly in his times of prayer continues to thank God for the powerful work God is doing in the midst of the Ephesian church. He continues to thank God for the faithful response of the Ephesian Christians. What about you? What do you give thanks for in your prayers to God? Are you giving thanks for fellow Christians in the church for their faith in Jesus Christ and love for one another? What characterizes your thanksgiving? 
but give thanks to God, Paul does. And he goes on to pray and intercede for the Ephesian church, church in verses 16 to 19. He prays that the church know the fullness of God's grace given to them. Know the fullness of God's grace given to them. Paul continues to remember the Ephesian church in his prayers. And he makes two requests. Look at me in, in the Bible. He makes two requests to God, our mighty and glorious Father. He makes two requests for the church. Firstly, Paul prays that God may give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul prays that they know God in the fullness of grace. He prays that the Holy Spirit who indwells the believers will give them wisdom and reveal who God is to them. Paul prays that as part of the Spirit's ministry to the Ephesian Christians, that the Holy Spirit will help them grow in deeper understanding of and in closer relationship to the living and true God whom they now serve. Secondly, Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians that their eyes of their hearts be enlightened. In some translation, illumination is used in place or enlightened. What Paul is most likely saying here is that the hearts of the Ephesian Christians have really been enlightened because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. But Paul is praying for more extensive enlightening or illumination. Paul is praying for more insight. It's almost like saying there is light as dawn breaks. But Paul prays for the blazing light of the noonday sun. In other words, quoting theologian and teacher Clinton Arnold, Paul is saying that the already present Spirit of God to work to reveal God to the efficient Christians in more profound ways. Paul's second prayer request then is for the efficient Christians to increasingly understand God in more deeper and profound ways. And the second request comprises three components. The first component is that these believers will grow in their understanding of the hope that is theirs when God called them. Paul prays that you may know what is the hope to which he called you. Paul wants his believers to know that God has chosen them before the foundation of the world and that time is coming when he will bring everything under the headship of Christ. In verses 3 to 14, where Paul speaks of God's blessings to believers, Paul talks of this future hope as a time that God will bring all the rebellious powers under the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. Yet, it's also a time which when believers will experience full and final redemption. And Christ will present the church to himself as a perfect right. It will be sinless and gloriously perfect. What a beautiful picture of the hope that is painted for us. And why is this important for us to know this hope? Why is it so important for us to know this hope? Knowing the truth about the future and one's place in these events provides us great comfort when coping with difficulties, injustices and trials of the present. 
Paul is precisely praying for the Ephesians to have this firm, unshakable vision of this future hope. The second component is that the Ephesians believers increasingly realize that God looks on them as his glorious inheritance. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You know, sometimes we read scripture and we read it through Christian lenses because we've been taught and heard this before. And we think that, yeah, we have a glorious inheritance in Christ. But read the sentence carefully. Do you see how the sentence is phrased? It is the efficient believers themselves that are the riches of God's glorious inheritance. In the time of Exodus, the people of God are described as His inheritance. Deuteronomy 9.29 says, But they are, meaning, uh, they are your, meaning God's people, your inheritance that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. And we see in the prophets, in Zephaniah 3.17, the prophets tells us, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will... He will exalt over you with loud singing. God is described as a saving, singing God who rejoices over His people with gladness and love. And the point here is, what Paul wants to know, his readers to know, is how deeply God values and cherishes them. Just as a human king values a treasure vault full of silver and gold. God values His people as His wealth and honour. You are God's incredibly valuable and glorious inheritance. I am God's valuable and glorious inheritance. And how can this be so? Quoting biblical scholar F.F. Bruce, he says this, that God should set such a high value on a community of sinners, rescued from ruin, and still bearing too many traces of their former state, might as well seem incredible. Were it not made clear that He sees us in Christ, as from the beginning He chose us in Christ. Knowing this about your value as God's dearly treasured will serve as an antidote to any sense of your lack of self-worth. My beloved, in Christ, you are dearly valued and treasured by God. Finally, the third component is that the efficient believers are increasingly aware of the incredibly, incomparable, great power of God working in their lives. They have been increasingly aware of the incomparable, great power of God working in their lives. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? The word power here is associated to God's power at work and for the victory of God's kingdom. It is the same Greek word that is used to translate 
the Hebrew word power of Exodus 15.6, Exodus 15.6, which is the song of Moses after God led the Israelite out in the Exodus event. Here is used to speak of the manifestation of God's power for His people as they face their enemies in the conquest of Canaan. The truth of God's mighty power at work for His people is all the more needed in the light of all the power structures of the city of Ephesus, which seem to be opposed to the seemingly weak and powerless church. And this will encourage those of us who feel powerless in our fight against the sin and idols who still have seem to have power over us. God has immeasurable power available to you to help you to overcome. And to further expand on this idea, Paul goes on in verses 19 to 23 to give four descriptions, not one, not two, not three, but four descriptions of the greatness of God's power. Paul here is not just simply trying to teach these believers about the matchless power of God. He is convinced that this truth ultimately needs to be carved upon their hearts, upon your hearts, by the spirit of revelation. Paul lets the Ephesian church know that he labours in unceasing prayer for this to take place. Quoting Pastor John Stott, single guy like myself who had many years of ministry, this is what Pastor John Stott says, what Paul does and therefore encourages us to copy is both to keep praising God that in Christ all spiritual blessings are ours and to keep praying that we may know the fullness of what He has given us. Are you praying for fellow Christians in similar manner? Are you interceding for them that they know the fullness of God's grace and blessings that is already lavished upon them when they receive salvation? We have seen debates in Singapore parliamentary proceedings in which the speaker gives examples after examples, illustrations after illustrations to drive home a point he just made. And that is what Paul just does in verses 20-23. After declaring the immeasurable greatness of God's power in verse 19, Paul gives four descriptions of the working of his great might which God worked in Christ Jesus. And he does this to drive this home into our hearts, the immeasurable greatness and power of God. The first description of God's power comes when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. God's mighty power was exerted first in Jesus' resurrection, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. God's power is life Giving. By it, he raised Jesus from the dead and now functions as the source of the reason Jesus' life. Is this same power that guarantees the future resurrection of believers, it guarantees the future resurrection of you and me who believe in Christ. The resurrection of Christ proclaims, He lives and that forever. Christ's resurrection from the dead proclaims God's power. The second description of God's power is shown when God 
seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Following the resurrection, God enthroned Christ at his right hand. Jesus Christ is exalted, exalted to God's right hand. A position of favor, a position of authority, a position of power. And if you are sensitive to scripture, you realize the language used here echoes Psalm 110, 110 verse 1. This psalm refers originally to the, uh, the king or in the line of David, the ascension to the throne. The original idea of the psalm was describing a particular Israelite king reigning with the power and authority of God. The right-hand position symbolizes the highest honor and closeness to God and the received delegation of God's power and authority. And Psalm 110 promises that God will defeat all of the exalted king's enemies. What Paul does is he takes something from the Old Testament and quotes this and says that Christ fulfills this. God therefore manifested his awesome power not only to restore Jesus to physical life, but we see here to exalt him to the highest level of authority over all his enemies. Christ is said to be far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one How supreme can that be? How much superlative upon superlative, how much more can Paul write about uh, Christ? And the main point Paul is making is that Jesus is superior to all his enemies, all his supernatural enemies. Christ now and always will be infinitely superior to all supernatural power. Paul assures the Ephesian believers there will never, ever be a time when any demonic being, spirit, or so-called god or goddesses, or even the goddess, so-called goddess Diana, in any way will threaten or rival the supremacy of Christ. The exaltation of Christ proclaims, He reigns and that forever. Christ's exaltation proclaims God's power. The third description of God's power is when God subjected all things to Christ and he put all things under his feet. Again, Paul cites from the Old Testament, Psalm 8, verse 6. Psalm 8, which we read, picks up the teaching of Genesis 1, 16, where God says that Adam must rule over all the creatures of the earth. And Paul takes this and now applies this kingly reign, this rule over all creation, to Christ. Jesus is the universal Lord over all creation. He solemnly reigns over everything in creation, even all earthly powers. Christ's dominion proclaims God's power. And the final description of God's power for us who believe is that God gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
the original Greek for this is a little bit confusing. But I think the best understanding of this is what this means is that Christ in his position as sovereign ruling authority over the powers and the whole universe is given to the church. God has given Christ a great victory over the power of darkness. And now Christ possesses full authority over them for the benefit church. The head of the church is a victorious and powerful Lord. And on this basis, Christ can give to the church all the empowering resources it needs to resist the opposition of hostile powers and to engage in God's mission for the world. That is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the making of disciples of all nations. Christ has given the head, Christ given to us as the head of the church proclaims God's power. Christ given to us as the head of the church proclaims God's power. You know, as I, as you hear this, I know some of you may be wondering, we consistently pray that we know God deeper and we pray and we pray that we grow in understanding of our hope in Christ, that God treasures us and that we have power in Christ. You know, Ollie, you don't know the issues I've been facing in my life. I cannot find hope or purpose for my life. I oftentimes struggle with self-worth. I feel overwhelmed at work or school. And I better sin and inner idols that I never seem to have victory over. I feel powerless. Others of you may be wondering, we give thanks for the church, for their love for all the saints and faith in the Lord Jesus. Really, is it possible I mean, just recently at care group, someone, care group leaders training, someone asked, is it possible love for all the saints? Please, so easy to save a heart to do. You don't know the struggle I have with some members of the church. How do I even love them? Much less give thanks to God for them and for their faith. My heart just isn't in it. And maybe to your surprise, pastors are people, are human beings too. There are times where I struggle with powerlessness. There are times when I struggle with justice. And my answer to you is, yes, I agree. On your own, you cannot. How many times have we been moved by guilt to pray harder? I know some of you, when we started this uh, focus on prayer, we are thinking, oh no, another call for us to pray harder. How many times have we in our thinking understood what needs to be done and exerted our wills to be more grateful and to give thanks more often? But what likely happened is that we found that over time, we fail yet again. So how then can we pray and give thanks consistently? Why should we even pray and give thanks. And the answer is present in the scripture today for us. We respond in worship, thanksgiving, and prayer because we have a sovereign for us God. 
clearly seen in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul tells us today. God treasures us as his glorious inheritance. This is seen in God giving his own son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that we can be redeemed as his valued people. And God demonstrated his sovereign power for us in the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead so that when we trust in Christ and are united to him, we have victory over sin, over death, and over all earthly and supernatural powers. We trust that in Jesus Christ, God has given us all the empowering resources to grow in faith in Christ and love for one another. We believe and pray that our sovereign for us, God, will grant the church power as we proclaim the gospel, grow in Christ-likeness and make disciples. This is how we can grow to pray and give thanks consistently. Because God in Christ has already empowered us with all resources. And how can our hearts be moved to pray more often, to give thanks more consistently? And here when we use the word heart, we mean it in a biblical sense. It represents the whole inner person, our understanding, our affections, our will. And the answer, my friends, is this. We pray and give thanks because our hearts have been moved by the beauty and awe that is Jesus Christ. We have been overwhelmed by the beauty in Christ Jesus. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 to 23 comprise of two sentences as Paul pulls up descriptions after descriptions of the beauty of Jesus Christ and the lavish grace of God to us in Christ Jesus. We get a sense of gratitude that rises into thanksgiving and praise and worship for the beauty and awe we have encountered in Jesus Christ. I ask you, my friends, read Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 23 again. Read it in different translations. And you will find your hearts strangely warmth by the beauty and awe is in Jesus Christ. And with our hearts motivated by Jesus Christ and our efforts empowered by God, we pray, we give thanks. We give thanks to God that in Christ all spiritual blessings are ours. We give thanks for the faith of others in church, the faith they have in Jesus Christ. We give thanks for the growing love we have for one another. And we keep praying that you, that I, may know the fullness of what God has given us in Christ Jesus. The thing with a message in prayer, on prayer is that we sometimes talk a good talk but fail to walk the talk. And we want to have some time for us to respond to the Word of God. Pastor Arnold started this last week when he gave time for us to pray in pairs after his message. We are going to do this again. We'll give five minutes after the benediction for you to pray and give thanks in pairs. I know sometimes it's awkward to pray in pairs, but I urge you to pray in pairs, even to vocalize your prayers. Give thanks to God 
that in Christ all spiritual blessings are ours. And pray for one another that we may know the fullness of what God has given us. And pray for today's message to take root in one another's heart and grow into fruit of faith, hope, and love. So let us pray before I invite the worship leaders to lead us in a song of response. Let us pray. Most Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son, who dwells and works in all members of Christ, whom you sanctify to the image and for the service of our head, Jesus Christ, comforts us so that we may show forth his praise, enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that by faith we may see Jesus Christ, who is here represented to us, soften our hearts and humble us for our sins, sanctify and stir us from within so that we may delight in your word and feed on it to our knowledgement and growth in grace. Shed the love of God upon our hearts and draw our hearts out in love to him. Fill us with thankfulness and holy joy and with love to one another. Comfort us by testifying that we are the treasured children of God. Confirm us for new obedience. Be the guarantee of our inheritance and seal us up to everlasting life. Amen.